Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world, usually produced in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Victoria, but today produced in isolation from unceded Bunwurrung country and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Police violence is an environmental justice issue, in my opinion. So, you know, so too is colonization. Like, we have to expand our frame. Abolition is, is should be a demand of environmental justice. Uh, demilitarization should be fundamental, should be the first thing that we should be talking about, especially since the United States military is the number one, you know, polluter on the planet, but also maintains this kind of, like, fossil empire of, uh, of extraction. From Standing Rock to Minneapolis... From No Darpool to Black Lives Matter and beyond. Today, we bring you an edited extract from a wide ranging discussion between Indigenous academics Kim Tallbear and Nick Estes, who locate the current uprising in the United States within a larger context of capitalism and colonialism and a long history of resistance. I'm Kim Tallbear, I'm Dakota, and I'm a citizen of the Sistan, Wapton, Oyate, and lands now occupied by South Dakota and by the U.S. I'm also from Dakota homelands, more recently known as the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, which, as you all know, are at the center of a world uprising against anti-Black racism and police brutality, and I'm hosting today's conversation. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Nick Estes. Nick is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe, also in lands now occupied by South Dakota. I want to talk to you, Nick, about the idea of the quote-unquote terrorist. So I was watching a 2010 Amy Goodman Democracy Now! interview with the founder of Peace and Conflict Studies, that's Johan Galtung. And by the way, he predicted back in 2001 that U.S. empire would fall by October 2020, so it seems that we're right on track. Galtung has compared... (laughs) He's compared U.S. discourse on terrorism as the U.S. itself wages war on nations globally with how the figure of the terrorist was invoked by the Germans when they occupied Norway during World War II. So Galton was a child at that time and his father was in a concentration camp. And he explained in that interview that Goebbels actually referred to the Norwegian resistance movement as a quote unquote terrorist group. So in your book, Our History is the Future, you describe the no-dapple movement being portrayed by settler law enforcement as a, quote, ideologically driven insurgency with a strong religious component, unquote. So can you talk about the effects of that discourse, perhaps the violent effects on the ground, and also as they might have produced solidarity on the no-dapple movement? And I'm obviously also thinking about what's happening in city, cities across the U.S. and around the world with the Black Lives Matter resistance. Right, right. I think you uh, accurately pointed out on Twitter a couple of days ago, or maybe the last day, I can't keep track of time, it's really hard in this particular moment, um, about the framing of the Black-led uprising as an uprising, right? And especially in a place like Minneapolis, because that was what the Dakota uprising was actually called. It was called an an uprising. It's now kind of called the U.S.-Dakota War. Um, But one thing that's really fascinating about that particular uh, conflict or war was that it was waged um, primarily by uh, civilian settlers, right? An irregular army, the first kind of national guard actually arose out of crushing 
uh, indigenous self-defense, right? And if we think about how um, war and war making, especially within the U.S. kind of imperialist nation state, operates, it actually criminal. Like its first step is to criminalize um, a self-defense and specifically criminalize black resistance and indigenous resistance. And if we look at something like the the Declaration of Independence. Um, I, I look at it as a counterinsurgency doctrine, you know, um, uh, above anything else, because it calls uh, the warfare that's committed on, on the frontiers by, quote unquote, merciless Indian savages. Right. And then also the fear of the king of England inciting insurrection amongst us, i.e. Uh, black slave revolts. Uh, so that in, in it's it's a kind of counter annihilation thesis, right? It's actually what the Nazis used against um, the communists at the beginning. They're saying we're going to exterminate the communists because of the horrors that were inflicted in 1917 by the the Bolsheviks in, in Russia, and then it became now we're going to exterminate the Jewish population because they, you know, it's a counter annihilation thesis. They're they're a kind of internal um, threat to us, right? And so. Looking at specifically this rhetoric of terrorists, right, it makes invasion look like self-defense in a way. And so it's important to think about the long history of the term terrorist and also thinking about it in terms of a longer history of counterinsurgency tactics deployed by uh, the U.S. Uh, kind of imperialist nation state. Um, and I think if the reason why I say this is is that counterinsurgency, we can see it in this particular moment in time, doesn't have to be enacted just by like the police or the military, right? It is a military tactic. It is a policing tactic. But we see politicians saying, you know, things like, oh, there's outside agitators. Uh, we saw a similar kind of um, uh, rhetoric during Standing Rock or during the No Dapple uh, movement. Uh, oh, there's, you know, there is this, there's these outside agitators. There, you know, the, the hippies have taken over the camps. And there was truth. There was, I mean, let's be honest, there's truth to that. But it, it, what it was trying to do was delegitimize the movement itself and to say that, um, you know, try to take away the agency of indigenous people and specifically the Standing Rock tribe in like in, in leading this particular movement. Uh, and so we see this in this as a tactic right now as saying, oh, these outside agitators are coming in. Um, but I think we can also look uh, deeper at the history of the formation uh, of the U.S. military. And there's a really good book and everyone should go out and read it. As a historian, history is like a very conservative field, especially military history. Um, but there's uh, uh, there's a military historian. I think he's I think he's he might still be an officer, um, but he wrote this book called The First Way of War, and his name is John Grenier, and he talks he writes specifically in this post 9/11 moment and talking about the irregular kind of warfare that the United States uh, you know began to engage in in the in the war on terror, and he said the origins of this actually begin. Um, with the formation of, you know, the first settler militias in the United States and that irregular kind of warfare against this, quote unquote, terrorist enemy, this non-state enemy combatant who was the indigenous, right? Um, that really began the professionalization of the, the, the U.S. Army. And we can see, like, even with the, the adoption of the Second Amendment, which is enshrined as, as some kind of, like, religious covenant in this country, um, was a result of uh, indigenous resistance, successful indigenous resistance that pretty much annihilated the Continental Army 
um, right after the so-called Revolutionary War, right? Right after 1776, they tried to invade the Ohio River, River Valley. The Shawnee Confederacy, in alliance with other indigenous nations, lured the Continental Army uh, out there and literally defeated them, right? And so, I mean, just to be frank, just because, you know, indigenous people uh, whooped ass against settlers, <laughs> these settlers, you know, had to draft a law to basically create a state-sanctioned way to arm individual settlers to attack indigenous people, but to also prevent slave revolts. That's where the Second Amendment came from. That's where the militarization of settler society actually came from. It came from this counter-annihilation thesis. I'm really interested in hearing about the roles of other movements at Standing Rock, the the No Dapple uh, um, effort. And so, you know, I know Black Lives Matter was there. I know that Idle No More, people from Idle No More were coming down and offering support and, and any other movements there might have been. Because that also, I think mainstream media did a terrible job of understanding the complexity of the kinds of solidarity and organizing that was happening there. And also the way, I know you can't talk about everything because we keep some things within community, but the way in which the people there on the ground were were governing and keeping things in check, right? Sure. Um, despite this dominant narrative that settler mainstream media has that, you know, the Indians can't take care of themselves, right? Uh, they're on the war path and they're uncontrollable kind of thing, or they're, they're lost in the past, right? There was something much more dynamic and present happening there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because I think we see this kind of happening now where uh, I think Bindalori pointed this out in 1969 with Custer Died for You Sins. It's like everyone wants to be like the, the Indians have a lack of leadership. And so they, they're always looking for a leader like who's you, you know, take me to your leader. There is a meme floating around the Internet with a picture of Noam Chomsky or not Noam Chomsky, <laughs> Christine Noam. <laughs> and she had a big like uh, Martian head. And it said, uh, take me to your chief, you know, because she doesn't even know. She doesn't know Indian law. She doesn't know, you know, like who, who the real leader is. And this has worked in our favor, but it's also worked uh, against us, right? And I think the things that you pointed out, especially with like the organic response to crisis, proves several things. One, it proves that we don't actually need capitalism. Capitalism is completely anathema to human social relations and relations to like the non-human world. And in crisis situations, people don't begin to like, you know, like it's not like Hobbes, you know, um, kind of war. Of, uh, I don't know. I can't remember the state of nature where it's war against all, you know, it's such a pessimistic uh, and like cynical out view or outlook on like so-called human nature. Right. And that even that concept is very troubling. But what we see in these moments, whether it's at No Dapple or whether it's in uh, the, the Twin Cities right now, is that. In, in crisis situations, people come together, right? They become, quote unquote, the state. The th they begin doing the th things that the state should have been doing to begin with. They like we saw this in COVID-19 here in the Navajo Nation, for example, the vast networks that are so organized around mutual aid. Uh, and, and indigenous people are fortunate in the sense that we have these kind of kin networks that are both uh, biological, but also not biological. And how, you know, how these clan systems and, you know, we call it Tioshbai, they call it clan down here, are kind of set up. Uh, and it's an organic response to um, state violence, but it's also, it's just, you know, to, for lack of a better term, it's a survival response to centuries of, of colonialism and genocide. And I think, um, I think the question about uh, the kinds of movements that showed up and, and uh, arrived and were there and very present, I would say that Black Lives Matter probably more so than any other kind of movement, if you can really call it that, because it's a decentralized network, right, um, was very profound. I remember I, 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 I left the camps literally one day and I, I got on a plane and I started this 
uh, fellowship at the Newberry Library, I was really kind of kicking myself in the ass, you know, for having to leave. But as soon as I got off the airplane and, you know, God bless the Newberry Library, you know, it's a great place. <laughs> and the indigenous community in, in, um, in Chicago is amazing. It has this really beautiful history. As soon as I got off the airplane, I, I literally went to um, the Chicago Indian Center, which is it's it's moved locations. But Black Lives Matter was there. Right. They were organizing no dapple solidarity marches. And that community is very tight knit in that sense. And so what we see happening even in Chicago right now is a coordination between these these various movements. Um, so it's Standing Rock like taught us, but also Black Lives Matter, like the uprisings that happened in 2015 taught us these things. And I would say the conversations that are happening between black and indigenous communities and black indigenous communities uh, is far more advanced than what's happening in the academy. These these are these are they're really pushing kind of the envelope and thinking about and theorizing um, what it means to be, you know, a, a black person with indigenous ancestry, but also to be somebody who's connected to this place and belongs here just as much as indigenous people do. But to also understand the intricacies of those kinds of kinship relations between black and indigenous people, but also the disconnects and the internalized, you know, anti-indigenous sentiment, but also the internalized anti-black sentiment, right, it, within both communities. And so, like, those conversations were really amazing. And I, I listened to some organizers from St. Louis talk about this um, who were involved in the Ferguson uprising and just talking about like, they had no idea that that was the, the kind of the central hub, the urban hub of indigenous, of, of indigenous civilization uh, in North America, that Cahokia yeah. existed there and that there was this vast array of, of mound cities. Uh, they call them mounds. It's just like a completely derogatory term. They're actually structures, they're buildings and how when the settlers came, or when, you know, when Western civilization, so-called Western civilization came, they leveled these mounds and they used them to make roads. They used literally, and many of them were burial mounds, you know, and so they literally ground up the bones of indigenous people to create like these large, uh, you know, um, transcontinental railroad systems or uh, use them as gravel for the highways that were built. But not only that, the, and you can read Walter Johnson's book, um, The Broken Heart of America, which is about the history of St. Louis, where he's one of the few scholars who talks about the histories of racial capitalism in conversation with settler colonialism and seeing the displacement of, of an urban uh, uh, black community as as a kind of longer trish, uh, tradition of removal uh, of indigenous people. But those conversations were happening be yeah. between Ferguson uh, organizers and it really carried over. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. Today, we join Kim Tallbear and Nick Estes in their wide-ranging discussion, placing the current uprising in the United States in the context of a much longer lineage of Indigenous and African-American resistance to colonisation, capitalism and environmental degradation. Christina Schull is, is asking, one of the listeners, uh, they say, my students often ask how disparate movements, environmental, indigenous, black, migrant, can see each other and work together better. This kind of idea of disparate struggles between black, indigenous, environmental movements, uh, we need to like disabuse ourselves of that language uh, because the environmental justice movement is often seen as, and I've, I've hesitated even calling myself uh, an environmentalist for a long time because it's so dominated in, in, in a kind of settler framework of like, it's easier to imagine, you know, uh, a post-carbon future than it is the end of settler colonialism. And I find that a problem, right? 
Um, but I think what also happens is that we, as like black and indigenous people are trained within these frameworks to speak to this kind of like this white audience, right? That's not, that kind of misses the connections and the conversations that we should be having. Uh, and I learned that from being here in Albuquerque because we have a lot of Chicano organizers who are at the forefront of environmental justice movements and they don't care about the, you know, the kind of like white supremacy that's dominating the environmental justice movement. And they've taught me a lot and I've learned a lot. And so thinking less about, uh, you know, police violence is an environmental justice issue, in my opinion. So, you know, so too is colonization. Like um, we have to expand our frame. Abolition is, is should be a demand of environmental justice. Uh, demilitarization should be fundamental, should be the first thing that we should be talking about, especially since the United States military is the number one you know, polluter on the planet, but also maintains this kind of like fossil empire of uh, of extraction. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about the role of the Standing Rock protests, or you, we might take issue with that word, what kind of watershed that moment was in the history of uh, Indigenous resistance and how it affected the movement going forward? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I would say that Standing Rock actually needs to be put into a constellation of different struggles. You had Mauna Kea, you have uh, Wet'suwet'en, you had the anti-KXL pipeline struggle. Um, and a lot of those struggles that I just named are actually ongoing to this day. And so, uh, so too with the No Dapple movement and my argument, you know, and, and I would argue it's still ongoing. It's still being like the courts still haven't decided the legality. <laughs> like, I mean, as if that really mattered, but I understand the importance of, of, of fighting these things out in, in the court. Um, so in many ways, it was part of this constellation. And there's a good book on or a good uh, issue from the Decolonization uh, Indigeneity uh, Education Society written by Kucha uh, Risling Balding and uh, Melanie Yazi on uh, the politics of water and how that discourse of like water protector, water is life, uh, became like they locate it within these indigenous movements and they say like, you know, Standing Rock was kind of this this kind of um, crescendo of this particular moment in time and that it arose out of a long, you know, it didn't just appear out of nowhere. Right. And so in that sense, it's a moment within a larger movement of history, but it's also a movement within a moment in history, if that makes any sense. Um, and I think that it's it's important not to bookend it with things. Because that's what I try to show in my book is to look at it as part of this long uh, tradition of indigenous resistance specific to the Ocheti Shakoi uh, and not necessarily just kind of like something that appeared out of nowhere, right? Um, it has historical origins and we have to give credit to those historical origins. And I think we're seeing the echoes of it in this particular moment in time, both in the, the response by the police, because many of those police who are in Minneapolis right now got most of their training uh, or actually were deployed in, in Standing Rock um, to to uh, against water protectors. And now they're being uh, deployed against people who are, you know, fighting against police violence. Salvatore De Rosa asks, how can we turn the struggle against fossil fuels and climate breakdown into a platform for convergence of justice movements? I think it already is. Um, in many ways, uh, like I, I make this argument over and over again, and I don't know if it's resonating with people, but you know, you talk about caretaking, uh, caretakers, indigenous caretakers and land defenders came very well. And what I began to do is kind of think about it in a broader sense and looking at like, you know, somebody like Berta Caceres, who 
was an indigenous land defender who was assassinated stopping a, med- a mega project, right? And how uh, our indigenous relatives in the Amazon were being hunted by the Bolsonaro government um, because they, they, you know, they represented um, an obstacle to the advancement of capitalism, uh, and they were targeted during these forest fires that happened, you know, just last year, right? These immense amount of forest fires that were happening, and thinking about that in 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 the context of like how do we converge all of these things? I think indigenous people, especially in this hemisphere, um, have kind of thought about these things and have converged these struggles. We see like the People's Accord in 2020 at Cochabamba, Bolivia, articulating what I would say is a far more radical vision uh, than the Green New Deal of environmental justice and climate justice. And who organized that? Indigenous people did. They 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 drafted, you know, I used to be critical of this framework, but I have a much deeper appreciation of it now understanding the history, but they drafted the rights uh, of nature. They were the ones, it was indigenous people who first came up with that. And so when you see like Washington state or wherever, you know, granting the rights of nature to a river, um, it came from indigenous knowledge and indigenous uh, kind of worldviews and indigenous movements. Those movements were so threatening to U.S. empire that somebody such as Ebo Morales, who is a peasant, who doesn't even have a formal education, stood toe to toe with Trump at the United Nations like a year before he was ousted by a military coup that was backed by the United States. Like we have to give some respect to our indigenous brothers and sisters in the South for being the theorists and advancing these struggles. Right. Uh, and we have to see them as connected to what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the Green New Deal. So Giovanna DeChiro asks, can you discuss your analysis of the Red New Deal? There's no Red New Deal. It's just the Red Deal. Um, <laughs> my friend Vijay Prashad, he's like, that's just cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I just kind of laughed and I was like, well, at least you got you, we got you talking about it. <laughs> um, the Red Deal isn't a, a kind of like counter platform to the, the Green New Deal. Uh, we just are trying to take the, the vision of it to a much like more advanced place and grounding it specifically in the context of colonialism uh, and environmental colonialism and uh, indigenous knowledge. Right. And we are making the argument that it's not just an indigenous issue and this is the problem with this is like oh there's it's the indigenous version it's the red you know it's the red people are coming out with their version it's not that um we actually worked in alliance with a lot of non-indigenous people to develop this this platform actually didn't come i I, i'll be honest i only wrote like five five paragraphs of the entire thing the rest of it was written by like um like indigenous land defenders uh community people like people who don't have academic degrees, but we sat down and studied, we talked to our communities and we developed these things. We developed an an abolition framework that we understand that police actually hold back environmental justice movements. We understand that the military, um, that we have to defund and like reinvest. Uh, We took a lot of inspiration for the movement for black lives in in this regard, but also thinking about, um, you know, things such as uh, treaties and agreements, right? Oftentimes, and you pointed this out, and I'm, now I'm gonna have to go back and read Rob's work, but you pointed this out, how there's this like nation to nation relationship. Treaties are often kind of defined that way as this like colonial construct, and it's become hegemonic. And who interprets treaties? We've, we've, we've ceded a monopoly of interpretation to the colonizing uh, state itself. And we oftentimes you know, don't interpret those treaties, but also like treaties don't have to be with just colonizers or white supremacist mm-hmm. empires, as you call them, Kim, but they can be amongst like everyday people, yeah. right? 
and like we saw like um, the Mother Earth Accords, we've seen the just transition principles that come out of IEN um, or the Tar Sands Alliance um, that, you know, the Tar Sands Alliance and the treaty that was signed in Ihangtawan country back in 2011 and the Great Plains Tribal Chairman adopted it. That wasn't between colonizing nation states. That was amongst indigenous people and grassroots people. And so we actually need to reframe how we understand these things. And so the Red Deal is that platform. It's a it's a we see it as kind of a treaty amongst um, what we call the humble people of the earth. Right. Fernando Tormos Aponte says, movement for Black Lives organizers have said that their demands for reparations must take place in close consultation with Indigenous peoples. What do you think this process would look like? I've it's thought good, about this a little, but not a lot. It's a really good question. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like, I, I would say that the the language of reparation, reparations needs to be housed in the kind of historical Black experience. I agree. And that's, I don't, see a lot of, I, you know, there's maybe, you know, there's some cases around this, but a lot of indigenous people, that's not our demand, but we support it. We support yep. it as fundamental to decolonization. And we, I think we should say that it is part of decolonization that we have to understand, like most people think like, oh, the United States didn't become a global superpower until, you know, the, the 20th century or that like monopoly capital, the thing that has colonized the globe um, didn't emanate out of the United States until after World War II. Well, if you look at the history books in 1840, the United States had a, had the highest gross domestic product of any nation in the world. Right. And it hadn't even it hadn't even extended itself uh, as far west. How did that happen? How did the how did the basis of, of capital accumulation happen in this country? It happened because of of African labor, right, in the form of slavery. And it also happened on indigenous lands. You can trace the rise of the first steam engine being used in a factory system in, in England uh, in, in around this time, around 1840 as well. And that was only possible because in these cotton mills because there was there is African hands picking cotton on stolen indigenous land. And so the rise of the fossil economy and climate change began because of settler colonialism. That was an edited extract from a longer discussion between Kim Tolbear and Nick Estes. Co-sponsored by Haymarket Books, The Red Nation and Verso Books. You can watch the full video at Haymarket Books YouTube channel. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. If you're listening via your favourite podcasting service, why not subscribe and give us a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3CR. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters.